Am I okay? Am I smart enough to do this? Can I do this? You start to look at yourself and wonder, right? And for me, it was about picking it back up and doing it because I had no other choice. I had invested time. I had invested my family time. Everything I made went back into this company. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Lizanne Falsetto, to our show today. Lizanne is the founder of ThinkThin, a health and wellness visionary, business media commentator, and advisor to the next generation of entrepreneurs. In 2000, after a decade of world travel and a successful career modeling internationally, Lizanne launched ThinkThin from her own need of wanting to create a better-for-you, high-protein nutrition bar for active women on the go. Crafted by hand from a family recipe in her kitchen, ThinkThin quickly scaled nationally and globally. Lizanne's ThinkThin bars were one of the first gluten-free products on the market, which put the company in the forefront of one of the biggest nutrition trends in the last two decades. Over the course of her 15-year tenure as CEO, Lizanne raised two children as a single mom and scaled the company to become a multi-million dollar household and lifestyle brand with zero outside funding. Lizanne ultimately sold ThinkThin for over $200 million. Last year, Lizanne established Pink Talented Angels, an organization that helps educate, elevate, and connect rising female founders. Lizanne is passionate and extremely focused on building an exclusive ecosystem to support female entrepreneurs, especially in the post-COVID-19 world that we're in right now. Welcome to the show, Lizanne. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's an honor to have you join us. And we talked a little bit about this before the interview, but I'm really excited to walk through your story building Think Thin and especially what you're up to now with giving back to women entrepreneurs, creating a sense of community and resources for them. I think there's a lot of key takeaways that our listeners can get from this interview. So looking forward to jumping into it. Me too. So on the podcast, I always love to start with someone's origin story. And especially for you, you grew up in Seattle as an avid foodie, and you're always spending time in the kitchen with your Italian family. So much of your upbringing around food and nutrition really is a constant theme in your adult life. So I'd love to hear more about your childhood. So I was very lucky to grow up in a huge Italian family. We lived in a cul-de-sac in Seattle, and we had relatives all over And we were able to do the four hours on a Sunday of this Sunday meal. My grandfather made the homemade wine. My grandmother was a great cook. They grew all their own food. So we had a staple of really understanding family food and love, really, around a table. And it was a great way to be brought up. It became a big part of who I am today when it comes to food. I love that. There's nothing better than food, family, and love. It seems like you definitely had a rich childhood. As someone who was exposed to food at such a young age, you would think maybe you'd have some interest to go to culinary school. But actually, after graduating high school, you decided to accept an offer with a modeling agency and forgo a basketball scholarship that you actually earned. So as a young woman, that's a huge step, right? To be traveling all over the world alone and not necessarily going down that typical path of college, which I'm sure all your friends at the time were going down. Can you take us back to that moment in your life and share more about your experience going down a very atypical route? Yes, it was. And and, and I think in my parents' life too. (laughs) 
Yeah, I know. Were they supportive? I was curious about that. They were. And, and, you know, I was never really good in school. I always had the three point and above and school was okay, but I never loved studying. And I didn't quite understand why I had to learn so much about history of the past that didn't do anything for me in the current time frame. And so I was always one of those to explore. I love to be outside in the garden. I love to catch bees. I love to be out in nature. And it was just a natural progression for me to say, you know, I think my education isn't about book studying, but about traveling and experiencing life. And so when I decided to take the modeling contract, which was nothing but a moment, (laughs) it took me nothing but a moment to actually say, I want to go to Tokyo and I want to travel. I don't want to go to school. Even though I loved basketball, it was a very big part of my life. I think I learned from playing basketball what it's like to run a business because I built a team. You know, it's like building a team base. And I decided to leave after my senior year and I traveled for a good, wow, 15 years Wow. Around the globe. And it was just a great, incredible experience. Wow. I didn't know you were doing, you were modeling for 15 years. That's incredible from such a young age. Well, you know, back then the modeling was so different too. I mean, it was more about the fashion. It was more about the designers putting clothes on the models that were unique to their styles of clothes. It's much different now than it was back then. And so it was a really exciting time in fashion. And it's when all the great runway shows were happening. And, you know, so I traveled from Tokyo every 60 days to Paris, to Milan. I was able to go to Australia. I was able to spend time in Spain. So places where they're unique, you know, Taipei, I spent time in Singapore, Tokyo was the base for me. And Asia became a very big part of kind of my culture and my education because I learned about food. I learned about herbs and vitamins. When I was in Hong Kong, I learned a lot about how herbs really are part of a base of a home and how they become a big part of the culture of what the parents give to the children and how the wives take care of the men. And so it was a big part of my learning process of where I'm at today. It definitely is. And it's actually interesting to see how your experience modeling and traveling all over the world really pushed you to learn more about nutrition, especially because you were always on the go and you wanted healthier food options for yourself, which at that time didn't exist at all. And I know at the age of 19, you actually put yourself on a gluten-free diet, which definitely was not a thing or trend back then. So can you take us back to that moment in your life? Because really your modeling and the travel that you did laid the groundwork for the idea of Think Thin Bars to come alive. One of the things that I think I did well is I listened to my body. And when you're traveling every 60 days and you feel fatigued or you feel that you are not hydrated enough, or you're looking for something to eat to give you energy or help you sleep on a plane that's you know 12 hours from one place to the next, you start to listen a little more to how your body feels. And gluten was a very big part of why is my stomach upset? Why do I feel bloated? And as a model, you have to watch what you eat. And you also have to arrive off a flight into a studio and look like you're fresh. And that's not easy when you're traveling and you're not able to find food. 
And so what I would do is I would really pay attention to focusing on proteins, staying away from gluten, because I always say gluten is glue, and being able to focus on portable food. How can I carry food in my bag on a plane where when I'm racing through an airport, I don't have to grab a hot dog or a hamburger. And back then, that's all they had was like no options for portability of good food. And so I started then to think, why is there no portable food? And in Tokyo, there was this one block bar that I would see some of the models eat. And I would ask them, what is that? And they said, well, it's like a, it's a cookie-based low-carb block. It was like a block and it had four pieces to it. And it would fill them up so that they could stay within a certain level of carbs to protein. And I thought, wow, that is really interesting. And this is way before the nutrition bar category even started, right? This is before Power Bar and Balance Bar and Cliff Bar, which were the three. I was number four in the category when when it came to launch time when I was 28. So you're talking a good 10 years from the time of even looking at what is portable food. And so one day I was walking with somebody down a street in Tokyo and we were talking about what if people really thought about what they ate? Like if you could think about what you put in your body, would you be able to make better decisions? And that's kind of where the Think Thin name came up. And I thought, gosh, you know, if there was, you know, think about what you eat, right? And then, you know, it kind of played from there. When I came back to the States, I decided it was time to, you know, what am I going to do with my life? I didn't want to be an actress. I did. I had no idea I'd go into business. No idea. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to start taking my grandmother's recipes. She made incredible brownies and she made chocolate chip cookies and she made peanut butter cookies that were to die for. She had this great thing where she could bake and she could cook. Now, I, I'm not a great baker. My kids laugh at me, but I'm a, really, I'm a pretty good cook, I, I hope to say. What I did is I started playing with her recipes and I started taking out the sugar and taking out the gluten. And I had in my kitchen, it looked like a lavatory. I had all the different proteins. I had all the different sugars and I would just play with the different items in the actual product. And I started laying out big slabs of bars and cutting them up. I was still modeling and I started passing them out to the models. So interesting enough, they became kind of my test group. This tastes good. This is too hard. This is too soft. And it went on for about six months as I developed the product. And I was really developing it just for the fun of doing it. I didn't even know I was doing what I was doing. Does that make sense? It does. No, it definitely makes sense. And when you were in your kitchen playing around with different recipes, did you have any intention of creating a business around these bars? I I didn't. I mean, I guess I did after the eight months. I thought to myself, something's telling me if I'm making five to 10 big, huge slots of these every night, that there could be a business here, right? Because you're thinking, well, why don't I start charging people two bucks for one bar, right? It's expensive too. It's not easy, you know, to find the right proteins. And and so about eight months in, I thought, you know what? This could be a business. What's next? How do I approach this on a business perspective? 
Yeah. And especially, you know, like you mentioned at the time, nutrition bars were not even a thing. You know, you were really one of the first to have high protein, sugar-free, you know, explicitly gluten-free bars at the time. So you really were creating a new category. So in the early days, when you knew you were really onto something, you kind of proved the product market fit a little bit. How did you create the awareness and education to take it to the next level? You know, once you realized, okay, something's here that I could make a business around it. I now can look back and say that I really do believe brands that are built from a personal need, from a personal desire, something that somebody's doing for themselves, inwardly thinking about how can I make myself something or have a gadget that helps me be better or more efficient, brands like that become a staple because there's this inward kind of emotion And then what you do is you turn it around and say, how can I share this, right? How can I grow this business? The first step for me was to find an R&D technician that could help me go from small formula to bigger formula. And that was difficult because when you think about what you make in the kitchen, and then you think about where you're going to go to large vat, ingredients, the way it's mixed, the way it's blended, the way it's baked is different. And so that was the first step for me to focus on doing a, maybe this is a business, let me take it from here to here and see if I can do it. And so I actually hired Yvette Morales, who was the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Morales, who created the Power Bar with the actual owners of Power Bar. And I didn't even know it. Oh, it was a coincidence? or I met her at a show and I liked her immediately. And I thought, would you consult with me and help me? in the kitchen. And so she was a very intricate part of taking small formula going to big formula. That's a really great point to bring in a consultant who's an expert in something, right? So instead of investing all your money into whether it's a new business or a certain strategy, you can at least pick their brains on an hourly basis or pay them for a specific project and really see how you can get something across the finish line before you really go down a path and invest all your money in something, not really knowing where it's going to go. So going back to ThinkThin, you're really thinking at scale and working through how to bring these bars to life and create a business around it. But as someone who has spent most of their career in modeling, how did you become educated in terms of the food industry? Because there's so much there that I'm sure you weren't necessarily aware of. Well, you know, it's different now than it is then. Now we have immediate ways to communicate and immediate ways to build communities like Pink Talented Angels, which is why that's an important part today for me to execute, because it's bringing people in together that share content and ideas and are able to help support each other. Back then it was a little more difficult, but what I did do is I heard about the health food show down in Anaheim. And I knew that that was a show I needed to walk and just research. And so it's a three-day show. I bought a ticket for three days and I walked those booths and I looked at the industry and I understood that the natural health food world back then was very Birkenstock, right? It was very sage in a way when you think about it. And I kept saying to myself, the natural food world is part of our health and longevity. It's so different when you think about the Birkenstock to, I used to always say, kick off your Birkenstock and put on your Gucci's. Like you can wear Gucci's and you can be sophisticated and you can be a natural foodie 
to want to support your your lifestyle. But back then it was very small and niche and they were very close to their chest on who they shared information with. And so it was a little more difficult because we didn't have the internet. We didn't have ways. We had a, a rotary phone and we had phone books on different, you know, yellow books that I had to go through, or I'd go to Barnes and Noble and I would look through the back of magazines and I would write down names of editors. I really did my homework. It was almost like I was in college. It was almost like what they make you do before you study for a paper in a way, right? But I think I kind of put myself through that just thinking, how am I going to get contacts? How am I going to find out how to do this? I read every book you could imagine about business. And I always, I always say, and I always said back then, if you don't know how to do something, find a consultant to come in for a day and teach you. Close the doors and understand how to do transportation. Like that was a big thing for me, transportation. How do I figure traveling nutrition bars from point A to point B by not being damaged? So these types of things were taught by researching, by trying to reach out to other people, to ask questions, and to network. And I think those are all skills that women listening today can absolutely implement in their own lives today. So thinking more about the early days of ThinkThin, you guys actually got pretty great traction starting out. My question is, how are you competing against other CPG brands in the space that definitely had much larger budgets? Because you ultimately ended up getting into Whole Foods and Trader Joe's, but I'm sure that wasn't easy. You know, I think it was easier back then because it was a new category. So it was a category that was so new, it hadn't yet even sat in its own area of the supermarket. They had us in candy when we... Really? So nutrition really sat next to panda licorice, right? And Butterfingers, because they didn't know where to put it. They didn't understand this portable nutrition bar, whether it's for triathletes or for weight loss or protein and sugar-free, which was my claim to fame was something that could create what it is today, which is billions of revenue for supermarkets, natural grocery, drug, and club. And so when I realized that I had something unique, that I had a piece of food that had 20 grams of protein, which is the most your body could absorb, was sugar-free, because I do believe that sugar drives cancer and disease. I learned that when I was in Hong Kong. Also that, you know, sugar is something that spikes your glycemic index, it's not good for obesity or diabetes. And I wanted my food to stabilize yourself so that you would have energy. So through that process, looking at how to present it to buyers, I had two very big breaks. I had Ia Ruth in the North Atlantic Whole Foods division that I had sent a big bouquet of flowers with bars in it to her I tried to do things that were unique so that they would look at it and go, what type of woman would send flowers with nutrition bars? Like I have to talk to her, right? I tried to do unique things that would catch their eye. She called me. She said, come on in, present. She took me into one division. And then from there it grew. And Annette Davison was another woman that gave me a break at Trader Joe's. And she said, you know, this is interesting. Protein in a bar and gluten-free, which is an allergen. And she got it, right? And now, by the way, she sits on my board at Pink Talented Angels. She's, She's a big supporter of females. But 
the door opened for me in a very early category. And I think I was much luckier then than a lot of the entrepreneurs are today in this category because you're competing against 180 different brands. And to your point, when you think about dealing with CPGs, the Crafts, the Nestle's, you know, of the world, they have big budgets, right? They can own the shelf. So how do you put your product on the shelf, afford to put it on the shelf in this busy category today, and then pull the product off? Back then for me, because I think my messaging, because my flavor, my taste was always good. I always thought that if you have food, it has to taste good for people to keep coming back to it. I had a little bit of a cutting edge over Power Bar and a few of the other bars that didn't taste so good. Do you remember at that time, you know, you said these two women gave you a break. Do you recall the rejections or did you have any skepticism around, you know, when you were trying to get your bar in different places and people's thought process on it? Because again, it was such a new category at the time. I did. You know, people would ask questions like, why do you have gluten-free on it? Doesn't that mean your stomach, your tummy's going to get upset? And, you know, I was pretty clear that I didn't want to change my path. And still today, the bar still reflects the same path, right? It it reflects the fact that it's high protein, low sugar, and gluten-free. And what I believe and what I learned early on in my career is that when you have allergen call-outs that become unique but will never go away in the food category, you can use that as a badge of honor on your food. So finding those unique positionings gives you a different twist to building a category. And so, you know, I started with a peanut butter. I started with a brownie, which are still the number one. Yeah, one of my favorites. (laughs) It's so funny how those flavors don't change in, in, in food. And I grew the business through two flavors. Trader Joe's was a very big advertising campaign for me. Because when you're on the shelves at Trader Joe's, there is some sort of marketing blessing that if the buyers find it appealing, you will too. They really understand their customers. And so I was, again, kind of thrown a bone of luck to be able to launch at Trader Joe's, have Whole Foods as a base, and then things just kind of picked from there and I grew from there. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that keeps coming to mind as you're talking about this is, you know, it takes so much cash, right? In terms of getting your first inventory in place, supporting these larger grocery stores. And you from day one completely self-funded the business, which, you know, especially these days is so rare to hear. Did you ever consider reaching out to investors or how were you managing your cash flow at the time? Because those are some really big accounts for you to really get the bars in. Yes, you're right. And this is something I wish they'd teach and school. And one of the things my children and I always talk about is payables and receivables, right? What comes in the bank and what goes out. It's very much like a checkbook, right? But they don't learn that early on. And and what's really interesting is that when you think about your business and you think about funding, today it's much different because the health food industry has grown. You know, when you go to the health food show today, it's a suit show. It's a financial show. People are looking at buying. Back then, it was we were the pioneers building the message that what you eat is who you are. And so it was a different kind of way of communicating to your customers. People still didn't know that protein was something that you needed every day. And you need over 80 grams of protein from a young age to an older age, right? So it's a necessity. 
to have this, to live a long, healthy life. And so I think the uniqueness of the messaging of being able to grow the bar from, you know, 20 years ago to today is much different because you have to, you have to enter into a category today that has a lot of badges of honor and people are much more savvy. They become label readers. Now they understand what sugars do. They understand protein. They understand gluten. So the marketing of today is much different. You can be a direct to consumer without spending the budget that I had to spend to go on the shelf. And so the difference between financing then and today for me was it wasn't an option to bring somebody in early on because I felt I didn't even understand the path I was going yet. And I didn't want someone coming in, managing what I was doing on their platform. I wanted it to be authentic and true. And so I didn't look at any investment. What I did is I made sure that my receivables were 20% higher than my payables always. And so what was coming in was able to fuel what I had going out to make inventory. And so I really just balanced my payables and receivables. But again, it was a much different time than it is today. And you know, a lot of entrepreneurs think they have to raise money from an idea perspective. And I always say, learn your brand, own it before you have investors come in and change your mind on where that brand really needs to go because it takes the authenticity away. I totally agree. And then we've had founders come on this podcast who have gone down the round of, you know, bringing on investors. And they've mentioned that one thing they wish they knew is how involved they are in the process. And early on, they wish they had more control on how things were marketed, the products they built. So I think there's just pros and cons to bringing on investors. And like you said, you know, if you're able to self-fund and really take every dollar from the business and invest it back, there is a beautiful thing of having full control of what route the business takes. And, you know, that doesn't mean you can't have advisors who can guide you, but we don't talk about that enough. And I love having you speak about your journey because, you know, you really scaled the business without bringing one investor until you sold. So I think that's a huge, a huge deal. I appreciate that. Thank you. It, it was a huge deal. I, I think it added a lot of stress. <laughs> That's for sure. But, you know, I guess when you're in it, you don't, you know, I loved what I was doing. I never did this for the money. I did it because I loved what I was doing. Every morning, I couldn't wait to wake up and to tackle the day. And it was so much part of my life that I ended up kind of morphing my personal life with my business life. And this is what I now have identified as the holistic method approach, which I'm actually using with our Pink Talented Angels and educating people on the level of my journey was I lived my business, I worked through my life, and I never regretted the, the seven days a week, 18-hour days. Because I committed to it and because I believed in it and I saw traction from it. But I really morphed my personal life and my business life as one together. Yeah. And I would love to dig a little bit deeper into that because I think there's, you know, a lot of people who listen, a lot of women who are balancing their family life and their aspirations of business. And we get a lot of questions, you know, in terms of, how are you, I don't like the word balance, but managing that. And I know for you, when you were building Think Thin, you were a single mom, you had two children who I believe were pretty young at the time. 
can you share more about what your life looked like and any advice for women who are trying to manage both? Yes, especially now, right? With COVID and everything. I think it's so interesting kind of going through what you see today. Like my son coming in telling me, I love you, mom. See you later. When you and I had started this interview, that's okay now. Okay, son, love you too. But back then it was different. You couldn't have this kind of roll into life and business together and be okay with it. Back then for me, when I thought about how I wanted to really work and play and have children, I knew that it had to be in tow, right? And so I would incorporate a lot of my personal life, like I'm pregnant to my buyers, I'm coming with baby in tow, right? They would say, no problem. I would come to the presentations with my children and they would meet them. A lot of the buyers knew who my children were from age, you know, one year to five years because you call on them and you bring your kids with you. So I adjusted my work life to keep my children with me. Now, today it's a bit different because we're at home, we're able to work from home, we're able to sell on Zoom or present on Zoom. It's a bit of a different level of communication. You know, I'm I'm a big eye to eye and in front of somebody. I really believe building a business is important to really present, look at somebody, understand what their, you know, emotions are and how they feel about what you're doing. You pick up a lot from that. But back then it was kids came with me. They had a room at the office that, you know, they played in and after school they would come to the office. So it was really a big part of their life. Now, was that good for them? Was it the normal way to raise a child? Did I feel like I was kind of the cupcake wife or the cupcake mom when I would walk into the schools and feel awkward because I, I wasn't always able to go to the schools? Yes, but I don't think that today that's the same. I think it's morphing the two together. And so the holistic success method, which is a method that I have created, is to bring in the personal business and the enjoyment side of you know your life your family your friends all into one roof and to be able to enjoy incorporating them into one and what i think that did for me it made me feel first of all not so guilty i hate to be honest but it's true we mothers live in guilt and i had guilt living my leaving my kids at home not with me i'd rather have them with me and maybe that was their education as a young child, listening to their mom pitch and deliver. They're both entrepreneurs, right? So it's interesting. Maybe that was their education and their path. But I think it's really not feeling guilty, enjoying what you're doing, incorporating it into your time frame of your day, and being happy about what you're doing. And that comes across. That comes across in a brand. I really believe it. I love that. And we'll definitely, in our show notes, link up to Pink Talented Angel so women can learn more about everything that you're doing and this holistic method. And yeah, I agree. I mean, I, growing up, my dad was an entrepreneur and similar to your life, he would bring me everywhere. Ever, even, even when I was four, I'd travel with him or go with him on meetings. And I love seeing that, really that work-life integration, because I feel like you learn so much as a kid, seeing your parents and being involved with different things. So it's beautiful to see that's kind of how you've raised your two kids when you were managing your business. 
And one thing I'd love to talk about is, you know, fast forward 16 years with ThinkThin, you ended up selling the company for over, you know, 200 million Your wealth multiplied overnight and you were, quote unquote, instantly a success story and had it all. That moment when you sold the business, which was like your third child, Mm -hmm. what did it feel like at the time for you? We've had so many founders come on the podcast who have different feelings about that moment when they sold their business. So I'd love to get your perspective on that moment in your life. You know how they say when your child goes off to school and that it's not there anymore? You know, this, this was my first baby. And when you think about 20 years of your life dedicated to communicating, being part of this brand, and then all of a sudden, it is a reality that you've sold it and the money's great. But I didn't do it for the money. I did it for the passion. Not that I wasn't thankful about having the opportunity to sell my business, And to know that this business could grow into an international brand, that's really what I loved about selling it to Glambia, is I knew that they could take it internationally. But it was hard. And, you know, I don't want to say I went into a depression, but I have to say that I had a bit of a low moment, at least a couple months of, okay, now what am I going to do? You know, when you work, work, work. And then all of a sudden it stops, right? That's what they say about people that retire. I know my dad, when my dad retired, he said, you know, I don't feel like I'm putting myself to good use. I don't feel like I'm keeping my, my motor activity going, right? And for me, it was immediately like, wow, okay, so I don't do lunch. I'm not a lunch kind of gal. You know, I can maybe work out a little bit more. But I immediately thought about what's next. And What am I going to do now? How am I going to make a difference? I felt so blessed to be in the seat of selling a business that I realized that the reason why I was in that seat was to give back. And so through this journey of going through this emotional ups and down, I came to this place where it's now time for you to be able to give back. And so I went straight into mentoring and working with entrepreneurs And I loved it. I loved it so much. And I really loved working with the female entrepreneurs because I could relate to them. I could relate to the fact that they had children. I could relate to the fact that they were starting out of their kitchen and that they were taking care of the home. And so it became a very natural progression to move into the natural mentoring, right, one-on-one, to then creating something like Pink Talented Angels, which is a community of women that can come together and support each other. And also bringing in this mentorship advising of why can't women understand that when you deliver what you've done, that delivery will help them grow their business quickly to the next level because you're teaching them what mistakes you made. And there was this resistance of that. And now I see this huge open mind of, I want to help other people, especially within the female community. And that's the ultimate goal for me, is how do we educate women that we need to have a good old girls club, just like the boys have a good old boys club, and that we females can stand in our feminine power. We don't need to be masculine to get our point across. And I think that's a really important point. 
that is a very important point and honestly something that I've struggled with in different industries I've worked in that were mostly male dominated. And I always felt as if I had to lean into more of the masculine energy to really get anything done, but it never really felt authentic at all. And I'm just beginning to really learn how to balance that. When you were starting ThinkThin, the industry also was mostly dominated by men. So how did you really learn to balance both your feminine and masculine energy when you were leading and growing the company? Back in the day, I came from the fashion industry. And so when I rolled into presenting a product to predominantly male buyers, I realized that what you look like has a lot to do with what you are presenting to them to this other mirror that's looking at you. When I presented to females, I realized that there was something else there. There was this deeper bond of communication. And the respect level back then, I think, was still small because females were in a male community of buyers, especially in in the natural sector. And so females kind of felt that they had to be a little bit harder. They had to dress a little bit more in suits. They couldn't have the femininity because they felt that if they did, they wouldn't be heard. It happened a lot in the C-suites and the board meetings where females, you know, you could talk at a softer pace. You could wear pink and still be feminine and be heard. I think that there's this shift that's happening today where women can really stand in their feminine power and be respected. Back then for me, I realized that I had to dress down when I presented to females and I had to dress up when I presented to males. And it was an interesting perspective for me because now today, I believe that there is not a choice of, oh, you know, if she's pretty, is she smart? Did she go to college or not? There's not these overtones that are being thrown onto us. But When I decided I wanted to start a new business such as Pink Talented Angels, I went out and I did a poll to 100 male CEOs. And one of the questions that I asked is, would you ever get upset or what would you do if a female took over your seat as CEO? And one of the responses were, I don't have to worry about that happening because another female will take her out before that happens. Oh, wow. And it was such an eye-opening experience for me. And I thought, okay, that needs to change. Women need to support women. And what that does is it builds that tribal communication. It builds the warmth amongst us. It makes us feel like I have your back and you have my back. And I'm going to support you in every way possible. And then I realized the only way to do that is to do it by showing that you're doing it, not by saying you're doing it. And that's where kind of this Pink Talented Angels community came about, where I wanted to take that passion and show my daughter, right? Show my daughter that it's really good to love and support other women. It makes you a better human being. It makes you a better person. And it excels you into the universe where everything that you want comes to you. And I really believe that. I believe that this community of women today that we are building has each other's backs, support each other, shares their database, wants to help them with things that they haven't been able to learn or connect with. It's a really beautiful moment for females right now. It really is. Absolutely. And it's actually interesting because 
A few months ago, I had this conversation with my fiance. We're both entrepreneurs. And it's just very interesting to see amongst men who are founders, how much more open they are in terms of reaching out to each other, right? Whether it's asking about certain business metrics or, you know, having a quick hour conversation about their business strategy to get some advice or even, you know, asking questions about making introductions or referrals, I think there's definitely a tighter-knit community amongst men. And of course, I'm completely generalizing. And I think there is so much potential for women to also support each other in business. And I think that's what you're doing with PTA, which is amazing because we don't have to do this alone. You should be able to reach out to a mentor or a colleague or another entrepreneur, male or female, and feel comfortable asking about questions that can help you. So I think what you're building is so incredibly needed. And and you know, it's fun. When you go to an event and you celebrate an entrepreneur that's had three months of guidance, but yet they're so smart, right? These entrepreneurs are so smart and they have such unique ability to bring consumer products to the forefront because females are mostly the consumers. So we can develop and know what niches we want to sell to other females. And when you're around that, there's something electrifying because it starts the neurons in in your product development or your execution of marketing flowing. And so it's almost like this big think tank where you're meeting beautiful people, you're understanding a different kind of going to a case study that we talk about here's what we did, here's how we did it, and this is why we did it. So it's a bit of an educational platform. And then you get to come down and have cocktails and great food and mingle with incredible people and trade cards and help each other out. It is such an incredible energetic bubble. And I think that bubble kind of follows you wherever you go. And if we can continue that message, I think that it will only become a larger bubble that will really help females. And and this is not, you know, I'm not a male. I love males. It's not about a male hater, right? Females that stand in their power and support other females, it's very sexy to men because it shows a woman is, is in her two shoes with comfort. And a woman that's insecure, it creates a bit of a delusion that she's not two feet in. She's one foot in learning about herself. And so I just want to build this message out to say, being around other females, supporting them, being kind to them will help the whole conversation for the younger generation because they will be in it. They'll be in that bubble with us. They'll watch us do it. So it will change the way we raise our children and our daughters, especially. And it becomes a normal path for them. Right. That's really true. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about how you've mentioned in different interviews how there are two kinds of entrepreneurs. There's one entrepreneur who has her head down and is marching through, and there's another entrepreneur who's more strategic, has her head up, and is looking ahead. Can you unpack what you mean by that and share more about how you look at entrepreneurs? So to your point, I I believe there's two types of entrepreneurs. There's the strategic entrepreneur. And then there's the tactical entrepreneur. And I think we all go through it. We all go through this journey where every day you go in and your head is down and you're marching through it, right? And when that happens, you tend to lose what are the trends? 
What's happening, you know, out in the marketplace? Are you walking the stores to look at your food on the shelf? Are you coming out of the office and really understanding what the consumers are saying, what they want? Are you delivering upon that promise and that need? And I learned very quickly when in 2004, I was about ready to sell my business to Hershey's for $55 million. And I went through a year of due diligence. I moved my company to Nevada. I did so many things to prep for this sale. And seven days before the money was supposed to drop, it didn't. And I realized that I was tactical. I wasn't strategic. And the reason being is because at that time, there was low-carb messaging out in the marketplace that was a trend, Dr. Atkins. I was natural to the low carb. So I owned a very big part of a category that Hershey's wanted. They wanted to take their candy and they wanted to move it into nutrition. So there was this natural, you know, growth phase for them. And so when we started this conversation, I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to sell to Hershey's. I was going to, they gave me a contract where I was going to be the chocolate, the first chocolate spokesperson for two years. It was just a really exciting time for me. And what I learned after the category blew up, I had to move back to the States. My father became sick. I went through a divorce. All these things that I sacrificed to sell the company and to relocate caused a lot of disruption in my personal life. And it also made me realize that I wasn't strategic enough. I wasn't looking up and out of what the trends were doing. I was in it tactically. So what I say to many entrepreneurs is you can be both. You can have moments that you're very tactical, that you're you're able to delegate and make sure that your managers are doing what you want and what your goals are and you 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 manage that. And then you can be very very strategic. You start looking at trends, you look at numbers, you make sure that you're out in the marketplace. These are things that I a didn't think I had time for because I didn't put it down as a priority. And what I learned after that was when I closed my deal with Glambia, first of all, it was a much better financial situation. I was able to communicate my brand much better. I was able to become more strategic in the way that I found my partners, the way that I found the buyer. There was there was a lot there that was strategic because I had to learn it to get through it. So what I'm trying to do with Pink Talented Angels is bring on this conversation of think about it now. Think about being strategic now. Incorporate that into your daily tactical day of what you need to get done to your strategic time of what is happening in the marketplace. I think that's really important advice, you know, to take a step back and not always be in the nitty gritty. And one thing that's worked for me, and that's something that I'm still trying to figure out, but I've really blocked off times on my calendar that really allow me to take a step back and really think about what am I doing, right? You can easily be stuck in execution mode. And I know for me, that comes way more naturally, just getting things done. But when you're leading a business or wanting to be creative, and thinking about a bigger strategy, being in the weeds isn't necessarily always helpful for you in thinking bigger picture. But wow, I mean, I actually didn't know about the Hershey's deal and how that fell through. But what a difficult moment in your life, right? To be dealing with the deal that fell through, your father got sick, as well as 
going through a divorce with your ex-husband. How did you deal with that at the time? Because so much happened, both personally and professionally, all at once for you. It's interesting because that was probably the first time I ever went into a bit of a of a downward kind of, am I really doing this? Do I want to continue to do this? Like I really questioned it. Am I okay? Am I smart enough to do this? Can I do this? You start to look at yourself and wonder, right? And for me, it was about picking it back up and doing it because I had no other choice. I had invested time. I had invested my family time. I've invested all, everything I made went back into this company. I was eating top ramen for the first 10 years of developing this brand. We did not have money for furniture for the house we bought. I mean, there were sacrifices that I made. And, you know, I guess what I realized through 2004 and that journey was that A, the only way that you can get through it is to get up and get going. I couldn't sit in the mud anymore. And I didn't want to fail. I didn't want to fail. I had something to prove and it wasn't to anybody else. It was to myself, right? It was to myself. And so I, I believed in my messaging. I believed in my product. And so I just said, get up and start it again. And really, it was like starting all over. It was like starting in 1993 again. It was a huge learning curve for me. And it was like going to Harvard. You know, for me, that education to get me to 12 years later to sell the company was the biggest education that I could have had to close this deal the way I did. And so when you hit hurdles or when you hit the wall, just know that it is only teaching you something to learn, pick it up and move forward. You know, I always say it's okay to say no. Never, ever think that you can't do it. Get going, pick yourself up and move with a positive, energetic force and you will be able to get through it. And I just kept telling myself that, you know, I've always been fit when it comes to working out. I've always tried to be fit, not that I'm fit, but I keep that mentality as a stress releaser for me. And I knew that was important. So I worked out every morning. I have always loved meditation. I meditate at night, but I started incorporating 10 minutes into the day. That helped calm me. I started doing green tea, which is what I drink a lot of. I love these green teas. Green tea is a real mellow kind of energy. It's not that caffeine that lifts you up and brings you down. So I tried to really focus on putting things in my body during the day that kept my stress levels low and kept my energy high. And so I started incorporating a bit of these things that I've learned into it that were right for me. And now there's so much out there that you can do to keep yourself into a balanced lifestyle, right? You know, they always ask me, what, how do you keep balance in your life? I used to always say, I have no balance. Balance to me is a bottle of wine at 11 o'clock at night. I was so passionate as an entrepreneur that I incorporated balance by bringing my personal, my family, my lifestyle into my work. And it became one, right? That was how I balanced it is I incorporated it together. 
Yeah. And I think one thing you mentioned that I want to touch upon is finding what works for you in terms of maintaining that balance, right? Whether it's working out in the morning, meditating, eating certain foods to kind of maintain that energy. Because I feel like even having those fundamentals, when you have those days when you're self-critical or something doesn't work out in your business, it's just going to your toolbox and being like, okay, let me, you know, do what makes me feel good. And it genuinely always does help versus just sitting there, not taking that next step, like you said. So I definitely agree with that. You know, one thing I want to also talk about is you've mentioned that, you know, the time we're in with the pandemic is still such an opportunity for entrepreneurs. And I've talked to so many women who might be hesitant of starting a business given, you know, what's going on right now. I'd love to get your perspective on why you think this is a good time for women to think about entrepreneurship or pursue it. In general, for women, the doors have opened, right? So if you think about opportunity in corporate world, the C-suites, the board meetings, you know, my dad used to always say to me, you know, I bring your mom to dinners because she has an incredible intuitive gut. And she would say, oh, no, I don't think Cindy's the right position for that. I think today there is a realization that females bring a different skill set. Females bring this huge depth of intuitive, emotional energy to the table that elevates a conversation in business. And so what I would say to females is the time is now, right? To open up the doors for what you want to do. The time is now to have support from other females, to be respected as an entrepreneur, to be able to take ideas that you've had when your kids are in college and you're at home taking care of, you know, the household to take a couple hours and put down some ideas of what you'd like to do. You know, look at organizations like Pink Talented Angels. There's so many great support groups right now within the female community and go for it. You have nothing to lose, right? You have nothing to lose. So I think the timing is right. I think there's opportunity with COVID to start building a business at home. It's acceptable now. A lot of people aren't going back to work. Look at Facebook and Google. They're not going back to offices, right? They see that the overhead has been cut. So they love the idea of working from home, being more strategic on what the goals are for each individual and let them fly themselves. So I think even in the corporate world, they're starting to understand entrepreneurship within their own employee base. And so that's why I see the opportunity now, right? And when there's opportunity and the time is right, that's when you attack it. I love that. That's so beautiful. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I'm so passionate about that topic as well. And women going all in, two feet in and exploring what gets them excited if they want to go down the path of entrepreneurship. So I want to close on one last question that we love to ask all of our guests. Wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. At this point in your life, what does wealth mean to you? You know, wealth can be defined so many different ways. You know, I, I look at wealth as freedom. I also look at wealth as an opportunity to give back, to make a difference, to be able to take your 30 years of business experience and share it in a platform that means something to you. And so to be able to lay out a conversation around wealth by delivering it on a platter to other people makes me happy. And, you know, listen, you know, there's nothing more than having security, 
right? Mm -hmm. And feeling secure and being able to step out of that everyday grind and be able to give grants and support hours to entrepreneurs that would you would charge hundreds of thousands of dollars that you know is helping that entrepreneur thrive. There is nothing better than that. And so I really believe that I was blessed to be able to sell my business and take it forward to you know excel females and males. I mentor a lot of male entrepreneurs also to really help them have the path that's easier than the 20 plus years that I put into my brand. And so for me, wealth is probably three things. It's probably freedom. It's being able to give back and do it on your platform, on your level of what you believe is your lesson through building your business. And I think the third thing is wealth to me is being able to have an environment for your children that brings in an education that's worldly. I love traveling with my children. I, I I love having them sit down in Hong Kong and taste dim sum and say, what did you think about the duck that was just grilled and brought to the table? How do you think about the language? And what I see from my children having that perspective is that they're different. They're more worldly. They understand food and language and culture, and they're being brought up in an environment that is educational, right? And so- that's what I would say wealth is. I know I was supposed to only probably say one thing, but... No, not at all. The question of wealth is so layered. So everything that you mentioned completely makes sense for me. And Lizanne, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to sharing your story and words of wisdom with our listeners today. And I'm looking forward to also sharing more about Pink Talented Angels in our show notes so women founders can get in touch with you and the resources that you're providing. Thank you so much for everything. Oh, congratulations to you too on your brand and what you're doing. I look forward. You have to sign up for Pink Talented Angels. You are a hundred percent in that wheelhouse of you know building the business that you're building. And I really appreciate you giving us the platform to get the message out because that is, you know, that is a real gift is being able to communicate it and have other people that are listening be able to be informed and, and be able to join and be part of us, right? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.